0: Salam alaikum wa rahmatullah ibarakatuh. Alhamdulillah in Ahmadu who was a strain who was a stagfiru who was not mean to be he wanted to work at Ali. When I would be lah in Shuru and Sanao mean say ye ati amadina, me at the hilah of Fala Mudilla, Omeny of the Lil Hufala Hadiella. When a shadow will lah illa law Abduhu wa a صلى الله تعالى wa ala, آله wa sahibi, وسلم wa كثيرا Sliman, Kathiran, Kathira. Ama badu من الشيطان belahim بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن Bismillahi Rahman in Rahim, in wa mala ikatuhu, عليه ala nabiye ya, صل amunu محمد alayhi wa محمد ala wa seldimu على seldimu ala ala Muhammad, kama ala ala وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما باركت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد. Respected listeners, once again we gather for the monthly tafsir of the Holy Quran. We've now reached Surah number 93, Surah al-Duha. Having started from the end of the Quran, <coughs> Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, I would be like in the shaitan of regime, this is the Rahman of Rahim. What <coughs> duha by the mid morning brightness, what lay the Saja. And the night, when it settles. مَا وَدَّعْكَ رَبُّكَ Your Lord has not forsaken you. And nor has He taken a dislike to you. <laughs> and most certainly, the afterlife is better for you than the former life. <laughs> and soon your Lord shall give you till you are content. So that you are content. أَنَمْ Did he not find you an orphan? Then he gave you shelter. And did he not find you in search? Then he guided you. And did he not find you in need? Then he made you... Then he enriched you. So as for the orphan... Do not rebuke him. Not rebuke. Do not oppress him. And as for the beggar, so do not rebuke him. And as for the blessing of your Lord, speak thereof. This is a very simple translation of this surah. This is surah number 93, Surah Al Duha. It's mainly known as Surah Al Duha and also as Surah Wad Duha. It's a Meccan surah revealed during the time of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam staying in Mecca before the Hijrah. It's one of the earliest surahs of the Holy Quran to be revealed. This surah and the next surah, Surah Al-Mashrach, are quite connected. And both of them are unique in certain ways and different from some of the other surahs that we've been reading and studying so far. In these two surahs, the Prophet wasallam is addressed directly by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the subject matter the content of the surah is mainly to do with the messenger sallallahu himself although the message and the morals and the lessons to be learned and gained from these two surahs are much wider and applicable to all people primarily the verses speak directly to the prophet sallallahu and reference specific details of his own life. Even the background to the surah will help us understand the individual nature of these verses and their unique connection with the Prophet It's related in a number of narrations that In fact Imam Bukhari relates his hadith and so do others. That once Prophet did not pray for a number of nights. So one of the women of the Quraysh, although she's not named in this narration of Bukhari, we learn from other narrations who she was. She came to the Prophet wasallam and said to him, that I hope that your shaytan has forsaken you and abandoned you. Sorry, that I hope that your shaytan has left you. And in another narration... She said, It appears that your shaitan has abandoned you. She was referring to Jibreel. And the woman in question was Ummu Jameel, the mother of, well, Umm Jameel, the wife of Abu Lahab. He was a bitter enemy of the Prophet. She was the sister of Abu Sufyan. And she herself was a bitter enemy of the Messenger, sallallahu even though she was a mother-in-law of two of his daughters. But in her enmity, she would taunt the Messenger, sallallahu and physically trouble him, as we've uh, discussed in Surah Abi Lahab. So, on this occasion, she came to the Prophet, sallallahu and said that it appears as though your shaytan has abandoned you. And in one narration, I hope that your shaytan has abandoned you. At the same time, the wife of the Prophet umm Ummul Mu'mineen Khadijah anha, seeing the Prophet unsettled nature in those days, she said to him, that it appears as though your companion, meaning Jibreel alayhi salam, has not approached you. So the truth was that the Prophet sallallahu had not prayed for a number of nights. And in that period, he had not received any revelation nor been visited by Jibreel alayhi salam. He was disturbed about this. And he was concerned. Seeing his... Unsettled nature, seeing his anxiety. Umm al-Mu'mineen Khadijah said to him in her own way, in in a very respectful way, that it seems as though your companion has not visited you. But Abu Lahab's wife, coming to learn of this, said the same thing to him but in a much more crude and evil manner. She said to him, it seems as though your shaytan, your devil, referring to Jibreel alayhi salam, has abandoned you. Apart from Umm al-Mu'mineen Khadijah anha, who spoke of this in a regretful way, meaning she wasn't disrespectful in any way, she was merely regretful that the Prophet sallallahu wasallam had not been visited by Jibreel alayhi salam recently and that disturbed him. And after what Abu Lahab's wife said in a very bitter, crude ...and antagonistic manner. Apart from what Ummu Mu'mineen Khadijah said and what Abu Lahab's wife said... ...some of the Mushrikeen also made comments in this regard. That the Prophet had not been visited by Jibreel salam when they came to learn of it. It was after this, and the Prophet himself was anxious... Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed Surah al-duha to comfort him, to console him, to reassure him. And this is one of the key messages in both Surah, surah al-duha and the next surah that follows, surat al-am The message is one of consolation, reassurance, one of comfort. Allah reminds the Prophet and not just him. Apart from reassuring him and consoling him, the message is wider. The message is even to the pagans, to the mushrikun, to his enemies in Mecca at the time that Rasulullah has a history and will have a future in which his protection is guaranteed by Allah. His well-being is guaranteed by Allah. And far from Allah disavowing him, <coughs> forsaking him, abandoning him, or taking any dislike unto him, Allah will continue to show his love and affection for Rasulullah in his own way. <coughs> So, this is the theme of the surah, and this is a backdrop to the revelation of the first of the surah that the Prophet ﷺ had not prayed for a number of nights, not being visited by Jibreel, as a result of which he was anxious himself. And his enemy, while Ummu Mu'minin Khadijah, in her love and concern, made a comment that your Companion, meaning salam has not visited you, and the enemies also made crude comments to the effect that your shaitan has abandoned you. So, in reassurance, Allah subhanahu wa taala revealed this surah and said, "By the mid-morning brightness, and by the night when it settles." in its darkness, your Lord has not abandoned you, and nor has he taken a dislike unto you. So the main message at the beginning of the surah is that Allah has not taken a dislike unto you. Allah has not forsaken you or abandoned you. But, to, but preceding this message, Allah introduces it and prefaces it with an oath. An oath of the day and night. Layli By the mid-morning brightness and by the night, when it settles. And the meaning of when it settles is when the night settles, that's when it becomes the darkest. As we've noted in other surahs, before delivering a very powerful and potent message, Allah emphasizes the significance and importance Of that declaration with an oath. Allah swears by many things in His creation. And the things which Allah swears by are significant in themselves and are worthy of our attention and reflection. Similarly, here, Allah says by the mid morning, by the morning brightness and the night. Why does Allah swear by the night and day? These two are some of his greatest signs. And Allah refers to them many times in the Holy Qur'an. In one verse, Allah Azza wa says, الْإِسْبَاحِ he is the splitter of the morning. And he has made the night a time of peace and settlement. And he has made the sun and the moon a precise calculation. This is the calculation of the Almighty All Knowing. The movement of the Sun and the Moon and the passage of the day and night and the phasing of the day into the night and the night into the day is a beautiful phenomenon. And it's something worthy of reflection. It lightens up our earth, and it beautifies the sky. And it's something worthy of reflection. Since we've become so accustomed to it, we may not pay much attention to it or give it much thought. But Allah has invited us to reflect on the phenomena of just day and night in the Holy Qur'an on many occasions. And he swears by them. In this surah, he says, idha Saja. By the morning, brightness, and by the, by the night when it settles. In the surah just before this, ida إِذَا when nahari إِذَا تَجَلَّةً By the night, when it covers, i.e. everything in darkness. And by the day, when it becomes bright. In another surah, again, just a few surahs before, وَالْشَّمْسِ wal إِذَا تَلَاهَا by the sun and its morning brightness, by the moon when it follows the sun, and by the day when it reveals the sun, and by the night when it covers the sun. So, again, the same sun and moon, day and night. In fact, in one verse, it's very beautiful, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, قُلْ أَرَأَيْتُمْ جَعَلَ اللَّهُ عَلَيْكُمُ اللَّيْلَ Qiyamah. إِلَى يَوْمِ الْقِيَامَةِ مَنْ غَيْرُ اللَّهِ يَأْتِيكُمْ بِضِيَاءُ أَفَلَا جَعَلَ اللَّهُ عَلَيْكُمُ النَّهَارَ يوم القيامة." When Ilahu Rayullah Yatikum belayed in Tuskununafi, a falatupsirun, Omin Rahmati, Jarlakum and Layla one Nahar, a Saramadin, Jarlakum Layla one Nahar, Lituskunu fee, while it at the room in Fodrihi, while I'm Allah says, Say, if Allah was to make the night permanent on you, upon you, Is there any God besides Allah who can bring day for you? Who can bring light for you? Do you not listen? Say, if Allah was to make the day permanent for you, is there any God who can bring night in which you may rest? Do you not see? But it is of His mercy that He has created for you, the day and night, so that you may rest therein, and so that you may seek of His grace and bounty, and in the hope that you may be grateful. So Allah commands us in this verse to be grateful for just day and night. And to reflect on this fact, that if Allah was to make day permanent, is there any power, any god, any deity who can bring night for us to rest in? Or if Allah was to make the day per- the night permanent, is there any god, any power who can make who can bring daylight for us to work and live therein? There are many of the verses throughout the Quran. In fact, in one verse, وَهُوَ الَّذِي جَعَلَ الْلَيْلُ وَالنَّهَارَ خِلْفَةً لِمَنْ أَرَادَ أَنْ يَذَّكَّرَ أَوْ أَرَادَ شكورا. And it is he who has made the night and day. خِلْفَة, succeeding one another. One comes after the other, as I said earlier. The passage and the movement of day into night and night into day. Allah says, and it is he who has made the night and the day. Succeeding of each other. لمن أراد أن أو أراد For one who wishes to seek admonition. For one who wishes to be admonished. admonished, For one who seeks to receive a lesson. And for one who seeks gratitude for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So there are many similar verses throughout the Qur'an. I'll suffice with this. The night and day are... Phenomena of the creation of Allah on which Allah has commanded us to reflect, to ponder and to take lessons from. And here he actually swears by them, by the morning brightness, Saja and the night, when it settles. and it's a significant to note that apart from the obligatory prayers. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commanded the Prophet sallallahu to perform optional, non-obligatory prayers. And he, Rasulullah sallallahu introduced these for his ummah. So they are non-obligatory. And two of these prayers are salat al the prayer at night, in the middle of the night, in the hours of darkness. And the other salah is Salatul Duha, which is in the morning. So, apart from after Fajr Salah, after sunrise, that's when Duha begins. Duha, strictly speaking, is the time after the sun has risen at some level, all the way till noon. So, the whole morning. All of that period is known as a duha. The earlier part, normally people perform salah, and I explained this in the commentary of al Bukhari some time ago. That, strictly speaking, what we some of us know as Salatul Ishraq is actually naful prayer at the beginning of duha, and what we normally refer to as al Duha is. The optional or sunnah prayer in late morning at the end of duha. So both salah, salatul ishraq as well as salatul duha are ultimately prayers of duha, prayers of morning. So with duha, by the morning brightness and by the night when it settles. Having sworn on these two things, what's the message that Allah declares here? ما وَدَّعَكَ رَبُّكَ Allah addressing the Prophet says to him, Your Lord has not forsaken you, and nor has he taken a dislike unto you. Far from taking a dislike unto the Prophet, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala truly loved him. Allah displayed that love and demonstrated it in many different ways. But it's remarkable that even in Allah's love for the Messenger وسلم, he did not give him paradise on earth. And that's why he says here, Ma Your Lord has not forsaken you, nor has he taken a dislike unto you. He does love you. But still, laka min al and certainly, the afterlife is better for you than the earlier life. Allah reminds the Prophet sallallahu that Allah loves you dearly. But still, the life of the akhirah is far better for you than this life. If Allah subhanahu wa taala wanted to make this life on earth, peace, prosperity, and paradise for anyone, he would have made it for his most beloved messenger, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. And yet, how did the prophet, sallallahu live even afterwards? He lived in such a way that wealth came and went. At times, wealth came into his hands, but he quickly spent it. And at times there was no wealth. But whether wealth came into his possession or not, his heart was Totally empty of the dunya. He had no care or concern for it. And this is exactly how he lived. And most certainly the afterlife is better for you than the earlier life. Rasulullah, being the messenger of Allah, his gaze was on the akhirah. <coughs> We've covered the ascetism and the unworldliness of the messenger sallallahu on many occasions. In one hadith related by Imam Tirmidhi alayhi in his sunan, and also by Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal in his musnad, from the noble companion Abdullah ibn Mus'ud radiyallahu An. Before I relate the hadith, Let me explain what the Prophet's view of the world was and his position and place in the dunya. He saw himself as a traveler and he advised the believers to see themselves as travelers. And a traveler, as we understand journey, at least before, There was a time when traveling. and it still is on many in, in many ways, but things have changed slightly. Now, the journey itself becomes part of the enjoyable experience. So it's not just the arrival at the destination. And the sojourn at the destination. But it's also the luxurious journey there. And the luxurious journey back. But prior to this. But even with this luxury. Physically a person may not enjoy. A a person may enjoy the best luxuries. But still there's a lot missing. Those who lead jet-setting lifestyles. Travelling all over the place. Their hearts and minds are not settled. For they always long to settle back home. A person could be in the most luxurious environments, But one's sleep is not, is not the same. One's food is not the same. And a person longs to be at home. But imagine the journey in those days, in the time of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa Trekking through the deserts. Lack of food, lack of water, lack of provisions. But people would put up with all these hardships of the long and arduous journey. On the understanding that this is all temporary. And I have a destination. I have a goal to reach. I have an objective. And I may not be able to rest here, but I will rest there. I may not be able to eat properly here and drink, but I will be able to eat and properly drink there. I may not be able to enjoy myself here, but I will be able to enjoy myself there. So the hope and the thought and the knowledge of later enjoyment... Later satisfaction, later rest and peace and contentment help a person get through this difficult journey. Even now when we travel, if we stop at a bus station or a train station, we make no attempt to make the environment luxurious and to settle down permanently there. A traveller has his gaze on the destination. And Rasulullah had his gaze on the Akhirah and he saw himself as a traveller in the dunya. And not only did he see himself as a traveller, but he advised us to see ourselves as wayfarers and as travellers, as strangers. So, going back to the hadith, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud relates, he says, the Prophet sallallahu lay down on a mat, and the mat had left imprints and marks on the side of the Prophet sallallahu So I went and I began wiping his side, and saying to him, "O Messenger of Allah." Why didn't she inform us, so that we may have put some bedding underneath you? Imagine this was Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. He lay down on a mat, and a mat being what we call chatai, a simple straw mat. It left its imprints and marks on the side of Rasulullah alayhi salatu wassalam. Abdullah ibn Mus'ud radiyallahu is wiping the body of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi and saying to him, O oh, Messenger of Allah, why didn't you tell us so that we could have put some bedding underneath you? Prophet sallallahu alayhi reply was, مَا لِي مَا أَنَا فِي الدُّنْيَا إِلَّا كَرَاكِبٍ إِسْتَظُلَّ تَحْتَ He said, what connection do I have with the world? I am in the world. I am only in the world. Except, I am only in the world as a traveler. Who takes shade beneath a tree. Then he rises leaves and abandons the tree. That is Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He saw himself as merely a traveler in the dunya. And in another, in another hadith later by Imam Bukhari, rahmatullahi alayhi in his sahih, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, from Abdullah ibn Umar radiyallahu anhumah, he says, Abdullah ibn Umar radiyallahu anhumah, that the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam seized my shoulders and he said to me o oh abdullah be in the world as though you are a stranger or a traveler and the meaning of traveler o عَابِرُ السَّبِيلٌ, the crosser of a path be in the world as though you are a stranger or one who is merely crossing a path. One of the students of Abdullah ibn Umar anhuma, he says, and it's in the same narration of Bukhari, that when Abdullah ibn Umar r.a would narrate this hadith, he would say, إِذَا أَمْسَيْتَ فَلَا wa السَّبَاحِ وَإِذَا أَصْبَحْتَ فَلَا تَنْتَذِرِ الْمَسَاءِ that when you arrive at the evening, then don't wait for the morning. And when you arrive in the morn- at the morning, don't wait for the evening. And in the same hadith related by Imam Tirmidhi, Rasulullah said something further. He said, Be in the world as though you are a traveller, as though you are a stranger or a traveller, a cross of a path. And count yourself from the people of the graves. I.e. from now, consider yourself one of those who is already buried. So the Prophet wasallam not only saw himself as a person who is merely traveling in the world, but he told the Sahaba, and through them us, consider yourselves travelers. Merely the, those who are crossing, those who are merely crossing a path, and the most beautiful demonstration of this verse was at the end of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam's life. Allah told him this many years before in Makkah. And the short, most certainly, the afterlife is better for you than the earlier life. What was the position of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam? At the time of the revelation of this surah. And what was the position of the Muslims? According to some accounts, this surah was the 11th surah to be revealed. Very early on in Mecca. At that time, the Prophet wasallam had a handful of followers. He was taunted... He was jeered at. He had to face jibes. He had to constantly hear insults, as happened now, where a member of his own family, because she was one of his relatives, uh, Um Jamil, the wife of Abu Lahab, was insulting him and verbally abusing him by telling him that your shaitan has abandoned you. The Muslims couldn't gather for prayer in congregation. They were scattered, few in number, weak. There was no group, no community, no organization, no system, nothing. A few scattered individuals who shared the same belief and who followed the messenger sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Allah told him then, وَلَا الْآخِرَةُ خَيْرٌ لَكَ مِنَ الْأُولَىٰ And surely the afterlife is better for you than the earlier life, than this life. Now let's move ahead a few years. Much has happened. The Prophet ﷺ has emigrated from Makkah. He and his followers have managed to escape the persecution of the Quraysh. Fast forward a good few years. After many events. And many years, the very city that expelled him and the believers has now come under the control of the Muslims. The Prophet wasallam returned, having conquered the city. Then the Prophet wasallam went back in the farewell pilgrimage. This was the final major event in his life. Imagine, after many years, before there were a few scattered individuals, now the Prophet had vanquished his enemies. The city that expelled him and the Muslims and led to his emigration was now at his feet. The tribes of Arabia were paying homage to him. The whole of Arabia lay at his feet. Wealth. Poured in from different directions. And here, in the farewell pilgrimage, the Prophet was not looking at or speaking to a few scattered individuals. He was addressing so many thousands of people in the farewell pilgrimage. After that, when he returns to Medina, and sometime later when he falls ill, and a few days before he is about to depart from the dunya, Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam sits on the minbar and he delivers a speech. And what does he say? Imam Bukhari rahmatullahi leil relates this hadith from Sayyidina Abu Said al Khudri radiyallahu an and so to others. Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam said Abu Said al Khudri radiyallahu an who relates, "Khutbah al Nabiyyu sallallahu alaihi wasallam." فَقَالُ إِنَّ اللَّهَ خَيِّرَ عبد بَيْنَ الدُّنْيَا وَبَيْنَ مَا عِنْدَهِ فَاخْتَارَ مَا عِنْدَ اللَّهِ of the بَكْرٍ has اللَّهُ عَنْهِ the فِي نَفْسِي مَا يُبْكِي هَذَا الشَّيْخِ إِنْ يَكُنِ اللَّهُ خَيِّرَ عبدا بين الدنيا وبين ما عنده فاختار ما عند الله فكان رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم هو العبد فكان رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم العبد وكان أبو بكر أعلمنا قال يا أبا بكر لا تبكي ان امن الناس علي في صحبته وماله ابو بكر ولو كنت متخذا خليلا من امتي لاتخذت ابا بكر ولكن اخوه الاسلام ومودته لا يبقى في المسجد باب الا صدّ الا باب ابي بكر وسعيد الخدري رضي الله عنه says that the prophet sallallahu alayhi wa delivered a sermon remember <Bayern30ỉ> <coughs> these are his final days and he said verily allah gave a choice to a servant between the world and that which is by allah so the servant chose that which is by allah so abu bakr radiyallahu an began weeping Husayid al-Khudri anhu says, I said to myself, ما الشيخ. What makes this shaykh weep? If Allah gave a choice to a servant between the dunya and that which is with Allah, and the servant chose that which is by Allah. And in other narrations of this hadith, Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu said, May our fathers and mothers be sacrificed for your sake, O messenger of Allah. And then he began weeping. So some of the sahaba, radiyallahu anhum, said, Look at this shaykh. What does he say? The Prophet, sallallahu said, Allah gave a choice to, his, to a servant, not his servant, a servant, between the dunya and that which is by Allah. So the servant chose that which is by Allah. So why is he saying, May our fathers and mothers be sacrificed for your sake, O messenger of Allah. But they say, as Abu, as Abu Sa'id Saeed al Khudri radiyallahu anhu says in this hadith, the messenger of Allah sallallahu wasallam, he was the servant being referred to, and Abu Bakr radiallahu an Abu Bakr an was the one who knew the most of all of us. So he began weeping. The Prophet sallallahu wasallam said to him, "Oh Abu Bakr, don't weep." Indeed, Prophet sallallahu wasallam had a way of Endearing people and reassuring them and winning their heart and love. Again here, Abu Bakr anhu was weeping. Prophet wasallam said to him, Oh Abu Bakr, don't weep. Then he announced to the people, Verily, the kindest to me in his soul and in his wealth of all the people is Abu Bakr. And if I was to take a best friend of my ummah, I would have surely taken Abu Bakr as my best friend. But rather, the brotherhood of Islam and the love of Islam. Then he added, let no door that opens into the masjid remain open. All doors should be shut except the door of Abu Bakr. Because the sahaba had homes adjacent to the masjid. And some of the doors would open up into the masjid directly. Prophet ﷺ said, let them all be shut except the door of Abu Bakr. He had that privilege. The point of mentioning this hadith is it's a very beautiful hadith. The tafsir of "Wala al-akhiratu khayrul laka min al-aula. Surely this afterlife is better for you than the first life. Rasulullah lived by that throughout his life. In Makkah, in Medina, through difficulty, even in conquest, in poverty and even in riches. Until the end he maintained that vision of the akhirah and the afterlife being better for him than the (coughs) earlier life. So much so that when his mission ended, and he could have lived on and enjoyed life, for Allah gave him a choice. Do you wish to remain or do you wish to return? Do you wish to remain with with the people in the dunya or do you seek that which is with Allah? Allah Rasulullah ﷺ renounce this life. And chose that which is by Allah. And surely the afterlife is better for you than the earlier life. And that's what he taught the the Allah. That's what he taught us. There's something about wealth and riches which I will mention in a moment. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, And soon. Your Lord will give you, so that you are content. <coughs> and this is mainly to do with the hereafter. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will give to Rasulullah until he is content. And some of the sahaba عنهم, said, In the entire Qur'an, this is the one verse that gives us the most hope. For Rasulullah will not be content until every person of his ummah has been granted salvation. And I've narrated the hadith before, wherein it's mentioned that the Prophet heard verses of the Quran in which the other Prophets of Allah prayed for their ummah. So Rasulullah began weeping. And exclaimed, Ummati, Ummati, my Ummah, my Ummah. That was his concern for the Ummah. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala promised to give him until he is content. May Allah make us amongst those who attain salvation. وَلَسَوْفِيُعْتِيكَ rabbuka fatarda, And your Lord will give you until you are content. And again, interestingly... If the Prophet وسلم, wanted, just as Allah promised him, Allah would have given him whatever he wanted in this dunya. Yet still, Rasulullah deferred his riches and his reward till the hereafter. Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab عنه, it's mentioned about him that his daughter Hafsah Anha said to him when he was Amirul mumineen that, O oh, Father, we now have riches. Byzantine Rome had been defeated, Persia has been, had been conquered. So she said to him, O oh, Father, we now have riches. If only you would wear clothes that are better than the ones you are wearing now, and you would eat food that is softer, and the food that you are eating now. So Umar said to her, Oh daughter, I will prove your argument against yourself. I will debate with you and prove your argument against yourself. And then Sayyidina Umar began reminding his daughter, Hafsah radiyallahu an about her husband. And reminding her how the Prophet wasallam lived in this dunya. And he related a few things until she began weeping, remembering the messenger of Allah and the life that he led. Then Umar said to his daughter, O oh Hafsa, I have told you before that I have two companions, both of whom plodded a path. They tread a path. And they reach their destination. I wish to tread the same path and follow them in their footsteps, so that I may reach the same destination. And those two companions were Rasulullah sallallahu and Abu Bakr radiAllahu an. So even though Allah promised him that your Lord will give you until you are content, Rasulullah alaihi took nothing for this dunya. His devotion, his gaze, his focus all remained only on the afterlife. And surely the afterlife is better for you than the earlier life, and your Lord will give you till you are content. Then Allah reminds him of his past, saying, Anam Yajitki yatiman Fa'aba. Did he not find you an orphan? then he gave you shelter. This is a message to the pagans as well. That you have seen how the messenger of Allah, how Muhammad the son of Abdullah, grew up in Mecca. And there's a lesson here. How he grew up in Mecca, and how Allah protected him and sheltered him, and created means for him. Allah has done that till now. For he is in the care of Allah. And Allah will continue to provide that care, attention, affection, and protection to him. Awa, This is reassurance for the Prophet wasallam, And a message to the wider world. Did he not find you an orphan and then give you shelter? Remember, pagan Arab society then. No law, no government, no authority. It was a tribal law of the desert. Rasulullah was born into a family. What kind of family? His father passed away before the Prophet ﷺ entered the world, whilst his mother was still carrying him. He was born an orphan. Six years later, his mother passed away. This little child of six years of age who witnessed the burial of his own mother. He had no father now, no mother, no brothers or sisters, no siblings. None. He was alone. His grandfather took care of him. In two years, he passed away at the age of eight. Then he went into the care and custody of his uncle Abu Talib. The Prophet wasallam was an orphan who had no brother or sister, no father or mother, who lost his grandfather at the age of eight. And now he was given over to the care and custody of his uncle Abu Talib. How could such a child, without parents, without siblings, without an immediate family... Without even a grandparent, how could such a child survive and thrive in a society like that of Makkah at that time? But Allah cared for him, Allah provided for him, Allah sheltered him and protected him. In that there was a lesson. And he grew up to be who he was, someone honoured and respected even by the Quraysh. They only turned against him when he declared the message of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. As soon as he proclaimed the message of Allah, the people turned against him. But hitherto, till then, he was honored and respected. So in this there was a message to the wider the public, as well as a reassurance to the Prophet sallallahu the messenger of Allah, Allah has not taken a dislike unto you. Allah has not abandoned you or forsaken you. Allah has cared for you and protected you and provided for you from the very beginning. Did he not find you an orphan? Then he gave you shelter. وَوَجَدَّكَ ضَالًا فَهَدًا And did he not find you in search? And then he guided you. The meaning of this verse is best gained from another verse of the Qur'an, in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, مَا كُنْتَ تَدْرِي مَا الْكِتَابُ وَلَا الْإِيمَانُ وَلَكِنْ جَعَلْنَاهُ نُورٌ نَعْدِي بِهِ مَنْ نَشَاءُ مِنْ عِبَادِنَا Allah addressing the Messenger وسلم, says, You did not know what is the book and nor what is iman. Rather we have made it a light with, with which we guide whom we wish of our servants. And verily, you do lead and guide to the straight path. The meaning of this is, undoubtedly, the Prophet before his prophethood, he was unaware of the Qur'an as we have it, and as was revealed to him later. He was unaware of the articles of faith and the details of Islam and Iman as were revealed to him later. And he was in search. Dahl means someone who is lost. And a person who is lost, it doesn't mean deviance. Someone who is on a path, who doesn't know which way to go. That's the meaning of Dahl, of lost, originally in Arabic. And in reference to the Prophet wasallam, he was at a point... Whereby his nature, he believed in the oneness of Allah and worshipped the oneness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But as far as his people were concerned, he wanted to guide them. He wanted to show them the way. He wanted to show them the oneness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He was concerned, but he didn't know how to. He didn't know how to lead them from their darkness into the light of Tawheed. From their worship of the idols to the oneness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He wanted a way, a method. He wanted some means to guide his people. That's what he was in search for. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says about that, Did he not find you in search and he guided you. And like I said, the best way to understand that is by the other verse of the Quran, in which Allah says, Ma kunta tadri Iman. You did not know what was the book or what was Iman. The Allah then says, And did he not find you? Poor, dependent. A'il means dependent, in need. Did he not find you in need? Fa'na. So he enriched you. The Prophet was poor. Because even though he came from a noble family, and he went into the care and custody of Abu Talib, Abu Talib, though he was a noble, he wasn't very rich. And he was a nobleman of the Quraysh. He wasn't the overall leader of the Quraysh, but he was one of the main nobles, and one of the chieftains of the Quraysh. He was a chief of the clan of Banu Hashim. But by that time, during the time of the Prophet wasallam's adulthood, and before his prophethood, and in fact thereafter, Banu Hashim, although it was prestigious as a clan, it wasn't rich or mighty and powerful in other terms. There were other clans that were far more numerous and far more powerful and far more influential and actually much wealthier than Banu Hashim. But because of his lineage, he still had that honor and prestige. So although the Prophet came from the elite of his people, elite meant not wealth, but honor and lineage. So Abu Talib wasn't rich. This is why he had many children, many dependents. And the Prophet ﷺ did not wish to be a burden on Abu Talib, on his uncle. And therefore, even at the young tender age, in his early teenage years, Rasulullah by some accounts, as early as the age of 10 or 12, Rasulullah began working as a shepherd. Earning his own keep, maintaining himself, and refusing to be a burden on his uncle, who already had many dependents. Rasulullah grew up in that manner. He lived as a she worked as a shepherd. He then later on became a trader, though he'd never had much capital himself. Rasulullah managed trade for other people. His uncle Abu Talib took him on trade missions to Sham. And the Prophet ﷺ assisted his uncle. And it was as a manager of other people's capital and other people's business and trade, that the Prophet ﷺ came to the notice of Umm al-Mu'mineen Khadijah anha, who was a wealthy businesswoman herself. She employed the Prophet and observing him closely and gaining accounts of his honesty, integrity, his character, his mannerisms, his conduct. She was overly impressed, and since she was a widow and seeking a suitor herself, a husband, Umm muminin Khadijah proposed. To the Prophet وسلم, through other means. So, till his marriage to Umm al Mu'mineen Khadijah, Rasulullah worked hard, even as a shepherd, as a manager for other people's business and trade, though he didn't have much capital himself. And it was only when Umm al-Mu'mineen Khadijah eventually married him, he eventually married Umm al-Mu'mineen Khadijah at the age of 25, that she invited him home. And he lived with her in her house. And she was wealthy. And she spent on him freely. However, this does not contradict... What I was saying earlier, this is why I said earlier on I'm going to say something about wealth soon. This is it. Earlier on we learned that Allah told the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi al fatarda." and surely the afterlife is better for you than the earlier life, and your Lord will give you until you are content. There we spoke about the asceticism of the Prophet وسلم, his unworldliness, in fact his poverty. Here, Allah says, wa says, وَوَجَدَكَ عَائِلًا فأغنى And he found you dependent, and he enriched you. And earlier on at the beginning, I, I gave the translation, he made you independent. So he found you dependent, and he rendered you independent. Does this contradict the earlier verse? Here, Allah speaks of enriching the Prophet alaihi No. Because, as I said earlier, riches came and went, wealth came and went. It's how the Prophet wasallam viewed that wealth and the connection of that wealth to his heart and to his mind. This is what mattered. So wealth came to him in Mecca, wealth came to him in Medina. But very soon the Prophet would dispose of it. In one hadith, is mentioned that in Medina, after Asr Salah, the Prophet stood up immediately after Salah. So he said Salaam, and he stood up rapidly in such a manner that, and he hurried to his chamber in such a manner that this concerned the Sahaba radhiyallahu anhum. That something happened. That the Prophet ﷺ rose after Salah and hurriedly dashed to his chamber. Later, the Prophet ﷺ came and explained to them. He said, I remembered that I had a piece of gold in the house. It wasn't his. It was given to him. Prophet ﷺ said, I did not wish for night to fall on my house whilst this gold remained therein. Gold came, wealth came and went. Prophet would give freely. And in fact, he would give less to those he loved and cared for, for he wanted them to be the way he was. He gave to others and deprived his own family. We learned of Fatima radiallahu anha, Prophet came to see her. He stood at the door. And on the doorway there was a cloth, a curtain, covering the door, which had patterns on. It's Hadith of Bukhari. As soon as he saw it, it reminded him of the world. So the Prophet sallallahu turned around and went back. Ali radiyallahu an wasn't there. Fatima radiyallahu anha later told him that my father came. He saw this curtain. Sorry, he, she didn't know at the time. He she said he came. He came to the door, but he turned back. Go and find out what it was. He went. Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa told Ali radiyallahu anhu, I came to the door of my daughter's house and I saw this curtain. And it reminded me of the world. So I turned back. And on that occasion he also said, what connection do I have with the world? He went back. So he came and related this to Fatima radiyallahu anha. Fatima radiyallahu anha was her father's daughter. She said to him, go back and ask the messenger of Allah, what should I do? I will do whatever he says. He, radiallahu radiyallahu went back. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa said to him, tell Fatima to remove the veil, to remove this curtain, and send it to such and such family that are in need. He gave less to those whom he loved. In another hadith, one of the Sahaba, it's a long hadith, I won't go into detail. But one of the Sahaba was concerned that the Prophet never gave wealth in his distribution to one of the Sahaba, to another companion. So he said to him, This is hadith of Bukhari. He said, This was disturbing me. Why didn't the Prophet give to this particular companion? Is it because he has doubts about him? He gave others, but he didn't give him. So the Prophet, the Sahabi said to him, O oh Messenger of Allah, you gave others but you didn't give to him. What I do know of him is that he is a Mu'min. So the Prophet said, O oh Muslim, say Muslim. And the distinction here is, Muslim means submission and it's related to the exterior of a person, Mu'min relates to faith. And it's to do with the interior of the person. So what you know of him is his apparent Islam. So the Sahabi said, I fell silent. But my soul could not rest. So I spoke up again. And I said, O Messenger of Allah, you gave others but you didn't give to him. What I do know of him is that he is a mu'min. Prophet wasallam said, a oh Muslim, say Muslim. He fell silent. Third time he spoke up again and said, Ya Rasulullah, you gave others but you didn't give to him. What I do know of him is that he is a mu'min. The Prophet wasallam said, Oh Muslim, say Muslim. Then the Prophet said, He didn't doubt him. But this was a reason. He said, I give to others. I give to people. But there are others that I do not give. But I leave them. With the contentment that exists in their hearts. With the contentment that Allah has placed in their hearts. The Prophet knows them so well, trusts them so much, and wants them to be with Him and alongside Him in such a way that he will deprive them of wealth just as he deprived himself. Others he gave, those who care, who cared more for and loved more, the Prophet wasallam wouldn't give them, because he trusted the contentment of their hearts. So wealth can come and go, it's the heart that matters. And this was the case with Rasulullah When Allah says, did he not find you dependent, a'ila, And he made you independent, he enriched you. This was primarily at the time of Ummul Mu'mineen anha's marriage to him. She spent freely on him. Where did he spend that wealth? He spent it on others. She gave to him, he gave to others. In Mecca he would do the same. In Medina he would do the same. This is why the Sahaba knew him so well. They knew that he was not a monarch, he was not a king of the world. Rasulullah alayhi was a prophet of Allah. And he lived as a messenger of Allah. Wealth can come and go. It's not wealth in the hand that matters. It's what's in the heart that matters. Riches. That's why in a hadith related by Imam Bukhari in his Sahih and by others, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, لَيْسَ الْغِنَى عَنْ كَثْرَةِ الْعَرَضِ وَلَا كِنَّ الْغِنَى غِنَى النَّفْسِ Wealth is not of excessive goods, excessive possessions. nafs <laughs> But rather wealth is the wealth of the heart. It's the wealth of the soul. Meaning to be content. A person can have millions and still be disturbed. Always wanting more. And that's human nature. In that famous hadith which we've covered so many times in Surah Al-Takathur and in others. What does Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam say? Abdullah ibn al-Shikhi radiya relates. Abu Hurairah radiya anhu relates the same hadith. Uh, Both companions relate the same hadith. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. What did he say? He said... The servant of Allah says, Mali, Mali, my wealth, my wealth. But he has no wealth of his own, except what he has eaten, therefore spent, or worn and worn out, or sent ahead for himself in the hereafter, and therefore hoarded a treasure for himself in the Akhirah. This is a hadith of Abu Hurairah. But beyond that, as for anything besides these three things, then he is about to go, depart, and leave this behind for the people. It's the heart that matters. And the other hadith, which is again very famous, Abdullah ibn Zubayr said that we heard the Messenger of Allah say, That if man had a valley of gold, he would desire a second. And if he had a second valley of gold, he would desire a third. And wallahi, that hadith is one, as I've mentioned before, that is one that we should memorize. It's one of the most authentic narrations of hadith, related by many authors. (coughs) If man... Had a valley of gold. The price of gold has shot up, and we measure gold and value it by ounce. And if you reflect on these words of the hadith, gold is what really matters. Gold is the highest currency. People trust gold when other currencies fail and take a dive. Gold, despite the credit crunch. And despite the economic woes of the globe, gold has shot up in value. And it remains the most precious metal from time immemorial. And gold is measured in ounces. Gold is what everybody fights over. Countries go to war over gold deposits and mines. People are killed over gold deposits. Husbands and wives quarrel over gold. The families of the husband and the wife both quarrel over gold. They can get divorced, but even post-divorce, there remain huge quarrels over the gold that was given. The same gold. Rasulullah alayhi salatu wasalam, The same gold that we measure in ounces, in ounces, in fine gold dust. Rasulullah alayhi salatu says a valley. Imagine. Think of it. We need to think. Maybe we're not that shocked when we say when the Prophet says if man has a valley of gold, had a valley of gold, he would desire a second maybe we're not that shocked because we can't even imagine it. We can't even imagine it. So think along the lines of not ounces, not gold dust, not a gold nugget, not even one gold bar, not even one tray of gold bars, not even a pallet of trays of gold bars, not even... A vault of pallets, of crates, of gold bars. Not even part of a mountain which has a vault, or a few vaults. Imagine an entire valley between two mountains filled with gold. Even if we had that much... Sulullah says, man would what would he do? He'd want a second. And if he was given a second, he'd want a third. Then the Prophet said, in Adam illa tab, nothing will fill the cavity in man except the dust of the earth. I, when he dies, and the soil ultimately. Fills his body. That cavity will only be filled then. That desire will only be fulfilled then. Will only be satisfied then. If a person doesn't change his thinking. So it's not whether we get wealth in our hands. It's what's in our heart. Some of the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum were rich. Sayyidina Uthman ibn Affan was rich. The Prophet own son-in-law was rich. Some of the sahaba who traded and they were rich. But this is it. The Prophet says wealth, ghina, And ghina originally means independence. That's what it really means, independence. So <coughs> richness or wealth is the wealth Of the heart, not the wealth of possessions. So it's not what's in our hands that matters. It's what's in our hearts. A person can be a pauper and yet always be hankering after wealth. Always be longing for wealth. So he's poor of heart, regardless of whether he's poor of possession. A person can be rich and of material possessions but as long as his heart is pure of that wealth. This is why in the hadith later by Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal in his Musnad, Sayyidina Amr ibn al-Asir radiallahu and came to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said to him, he promised him wealth, he said, I'll give you wealth. He goes, I'll send you, and you somewhere and you will be enriched. Allah, I will bring wealth to you. So Amr ibn Asr said to him, O oh, Messenger of Allah, I did not embrace Islam for wealth. Rather, I embraced Islam for Islam and to be with you. So the Prophet said to him, How great is pure wealth for a pure person? Pious. How great is pious wealth? For a pious person. So if the person is pious, i.e., like pious of heart, and their heart is not attached to that wealth, then that wealth can be good for them, for they will spend it in the pleasure of Allah. And I'll just end with one hadith which will explain it beautifully in a hadith related by Imam Tirmidhi and others. Rasulullah says, The dunya is only for four people i.e. there are four categories of people in the world. The first person, four kinds of people in the world. The first person is someone whom Allah has blessed with wealth and understanding. So he fears Allah in that wealth. And he fulfills the right of Allah in that wealth. He is in the loftiest of greats. He is in the best of greats. Then the second person is someone whom Allah has deprived of wealth but blessed with understanding. So he looks at the first and says, about, says of him, that if I had wealth as Allah has given him wealth, then I would do what he does. I'm paraphrasing the hadith. I would do what he does. I, he, I would, he would fear Allah in that wealth and fulfill the rights of that wealth. Prophet says, his reward and the reward of the first one are the same. The third person is someone whom Allah has deprived, has blessed with wealth, but deprived of understanding. So he has wealth, but he doesn't fear Allah in that wealth. I.e., He uses it in sin. He doesn't fulfill the right of Allah in that wealth, or the right of the wealth itself. Prophet wasallam said, he is in the worst of grades. Then the fourth person is someone whom Allah has deprived of both wealth and understanding. So he looks at the third person and says, if I had wealth just as he has, I would do what he does. Prophet says, their punishment is the same. And about the third person, Rasulullah said, he is in the worst of positions. So the first person has the right mindset and wealth in his possession. Prophet says he is of the best grade. The second person doesn't have any wealth in his possession, but he is of the right mindset, the right heart. He shares the reward with the first person. The third person has the wealth, but not the heart or the mind. The Prophet ﷺ says he's in the worst position. The fourth person doesn't have the wealth, nor the heart and the mind. He shares the punishment and the condemnation of the third person. Now we all need to ask ourselves and see which of these four categories we belong to it doesn't matter whether we have wealth in our possession or not. It's whether the wealth possesses our hearts. As long as the wealth doesn't possess our hearts, it doesn't possess us, then it doesn't matter whether we possess wealth or not. If we don't, it doesn't matter. We won't care. And if we, if we do possess wealth, we still won't care. But at least we'll use it in the in good ways. And that's what the Prophet did. So when Allah says, Wa a'ilan Allah found you dependent and then he enriched you. It doesn't mean that the Prophet led the life of riches. And it doesn't contradict what he said earlier. In fact, his heart and mind and his focus and gaze always remain on the on the hereafter, regardless of whether wealth came or went. الْيَتِيمَ فَلَا تَقْهَرْ as for the orphan, do not bear down on him, do not oppress him. And as for the beggar, so do not rebuke him, do not scold him. And as for the blessing of your Lord, speak thereof. If you concentrate, you'll notice that these three verses are directly connected to the earlier three verses in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa And even here they are addressed to the Messenger of Allah. So Allah reminds him in the earlier verse, أَنَمْ yajidka yatiman فَآوَىٰ Did Allah not find you an orphan and gave you shelter? So here he reminds him, O oh, Messenger of Allah, as for the orphan, do not oppress him. Then the other verse was, Did Allah not find you in need, a dependent? And did he not enrich you? So here he says, "What السَّائِلَ فَلَا تَنْهَرُ And as for the beggar, do not scold him. Let me focus on these two first. I've mentioned before that the Qur'an often encourages us to see things in a certain way. And one of those ways is, to always place yourself in the other person's position. To put yourself in the other person's shoes. Here it's the same message. Either you put yourself in the other person's shoes and say, imagine if I was in his position, or there may have been a time when you were in that position. And if that if that was the case, you should say, Remember how I was then, in a verse of the Quran, Sahaba radhiyallahu anhum. They went. They, what what happened in the confusion? They ended up fighting and killing someone, uh, a few people, because they they refused to accept their salam. They gave salam in the confusion. They felt that they were merely giving salam to protect themselves. Uh, it was a state of battle, uh, state of heightened tension and the sahaba radiyallahu anhum some of them refused to accept the other salam of the other people and engaged them in battle in which there were casualties allah warned them against that and in that verse allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says <laughs> and then allah says later qabl uh, I'll be brief. Allah says, O oh believers, when you travel, then do not say to those who give you salam that you are not a believer. Rather, Allah then reminds them later, in the same verse, كَذَلِكَ kuntum مِّن qabl فَمَنَّ اللَّهُ عَلَيْكُمْ فتبينوا. Remember, you were just like them. That's how you were before. Then Allah showered his blessing and favor on you and he guided you. Therefore, before you reject someone's salam, investigate, research, ascertain, verify. That's just one example. Either you imac- always ask yourself, have I been in this position before myself? Or what if I am in this position in the future? How would I want to be treated? How did I want to be treated then? Well, I should never forget my past. I should I should never forget that I was in the same position. I wanted to be treated in a certain way. Now that Allah has blessed me, I should treat this person in the same way. Or, maybe I've never been in that position before. What about in the future? Allah says of here of an orphan exactly the same Allah tells us think think if you, you may not have been in that position maybe we grew up with parents with a family as a stable family unit we never suffered bereavement we never suffered the loss of a father or mother or both parents so we may not be able to identify With the other person. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in a verse of the Quran, it's the same thing, forcing us to think about being in the other person's shoes, in the other person's position. Or having our loved ones being in their position. So in this verse Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, that let those who leave behind children, who are weak and vulnerable. And who fear for them. Let them fear also. And let them fear Allah. The meaning of the verse is. That imagine if you were to die. And your children were to be orphaned. They are young, poor, weak, vulnerable. They may not even be poor, maybe you leave wealth for them, but they are vulnerable. Imagine the fear you would have now, that they go into the care and custody of others. Who are cruel to them, who do not look after them, who do not care for them. Who actually deprive them of their wealth, and their rightful wealth, they rob them and deprive them of it. Don't you have that fear? Imagine that thought. How would you want your orphan children to be treated? How would you fear there be their mistreatment? Well, whatever you want for them, and whatever you fear for them, fear the same for other people's children. And fear Allah in that regard. So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reminds the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa or Messenger of Allah, remember, you were an orphan, therefore you do not oppress an orphan. And the Prophet indeed, he advised us about orphans also. In a, Allah speaks about orphans throughout the Quran. In many verses where Allah speaks of spending, Allah says, time and time again, orphans, orphans, orphans. We don't have time, otherwise I'd relate the verses. Again and again, Allah reminds us to spend on orphans, orphans. And the Prophet ﷺ says in a hadith later by Imam Bukhari in his Sahih and by others. He said, I am the sponsor of an orphan. I am the carer of an orphan will be like this in Jannah. And then he joined his two fingers, the index finger and the middle finger. I am the sponsor of an orphan. I am the custodian of an orphan will be like this in Jannah. In a hadith. Related by Imam Ahmad ibnbalin's Muslim, Rasulullah says, Whoever wipes his hand over the head of an orphan, whose head no one has wiped before except Allah, meaning no one has done it before. Whoever wipes the head of an orphan. For every hair over which his hand passes, Allah gives him many, many rewards. Over every hair. And Rasulullah his own noble practice was, whenever an orphan would come to him, Rasulullah would stroke him three times. Stroke his head three times. Because he never forgot that he was an orphan. And we should never forget that the most beloved messenger of Allah was an orphan. And we may not suffer, we may not have suffered, but Allah and His Messenger وسلم, have reminded us again and again think of the orphan. Do not oppress him. And the meaning of oppress because orphans, since they don't have the protection of their parents, they are very vulnerable. If they are in developed countries or undeveloped countries, if they have no parents or families, they get sent to homes. And if they are In other countries where there's a family structure, still they often end up in the hands and the care and custody of their uncles, of distant relatives. Many who are certainly not as compassionate and as caring and considerate as the deceased parents. And sometimes there may be cases of abuse, abuse of wealth, abuse of affection. Verbal emotional abuse. Whatever the case, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has warned us about orphans in the Quran, and here he reminds the Prophet, do not oppress the orphan. And ask for the beggar, do not scold him. If someone comes, again, place yourself in their position. If a beggar comes, Allah says in another verse of the Quran, A good word and forgiveness is far better than charity followed by trouble and hurt. Meaning, if someone comes to you and you don't have anything to give, you should apologize for not having anything to give. And say a good word, not dismissively but sincerely. Say a word of encouragement that Insha'Allah, Allah will provide, Allah will give you something. And seek forgiveness, un-maghfirah, and forgiveness. Not giving anything but saying a good word and asking for forgiveness for having not been able to give and share. This is still better than giving charity, which is the used as leverage afterwards. Any charity given insincerely. So the, the etiquette of Islam is, give whatever you can. In a hadith, it's related that a woman came to the Prophet ﷺ and said to him, O oh Messenger of Allah, sometimes a beggar comes to my door and I have nothing to give him. What should I do? The Prophet ﷺ said, give him even if the only thing you have to give him is the burnt hoof of an animal. I, what, How useful or how edible is the burnt hoof of an animal? The Prophet said, Give even if that's all you have. He advised us to even give a piece of a date. Islam is about giving, charity, sharing. And never. Here it's not so much about charity. Allah reminds the Prophet remember at one time you were in need. So, O oh Messenger of Allah, do not scold the beggar. Here, it's not about spending, whether you give or you don't give. Do not speak ill, do not scold the beggar. And unfortunately we see this where uh, in parts of the world where we have beggars. They are scolded and overlooked and dismissed and derided. Even if someone chooses not to give, a person can pass by honorably without abusing them, without scolding them, without driving them away. Imagine if you were in that position. وَأَمَّا, وَأمّا بِنِعْمَةِ And ask for the gift of your Lord, speak thereof. And here this is related to the other verse where Allah says... And did he not find you in search? Then he guided you. Allah gave the Prophet the gift of the book of Allah. He gave him the gift of revelation. So he was told, announce it and proclaim it. And that's what he did. One of the meaning of this verse, or in part of the meaning, the incorporated meaning is, speaking of the favors and the blessings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We don't have time to go into this. But quite simply, Can a person speak of the blessings and the favours of Allah upon himself? So if Allah has blessed a person with anything, can he speak of it? Well, the simple rule is, maybe I'll devote some time to this on another occasion where I speak of this in detail, but quite simply, in short... If a person speaks about themselves sincerely, and he has to be sincere, without any self-conceit, without conceit, without arrogance, without boastfulness, then it's permissible to do so. And the intention should be the blessing and the gift of Allah, or... Encouragement of others. Or if there's a need. To correct and rectify a mistake or misunderstanding. Or to assert oneself. Especially if the opposite is being suggested. So if there's a need. And that need could be encouragement of others. It could be. Reassuring others, even reassuring oneself. It could be responding to criticism, etc. Then as long as there's a genuine need and it's done sincerely without boastfulness, without arrogance, without conceit, then it's permissible. As long as it's done with the intention of the blessing of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And as long as it's referred to Allah. But this is a very subtle, very delicate topic because it's very easy for us to say, Alhamdulillah, I'm only saying it uh, to announce the blessing of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and just to blow our own trumpet. It's very easy to do so. In fact, it's such a such slippery ground that if someone is insincere enough, insensitive enough, and arrogant enough to boast of oneself repeatedly, then for such a person, it wouldn't be difficult at all to sprinkle his speech with the name of Allah, and say, Alhamdulillah, MashaAllah, uh, Allah has blessed me in this way, in that way. person can boast in that manner also. This is a very delicate topic. One scholar was asked that, how do you exercise? How do you know when to speak? How do you know when to say something? So he said, very simple. Whenever my nafs tells me to speak, I remain silent. And whenever my nafs tells me to remain silent, I speak. So it's a very slippery slope. One has to be very careful. But the simple ruling is, and it's for everyone to decide individually, whether they speak of the favors of Allah and Allah's blessings on them. And the ulama of the past have done so. The sahaba anhum did so. The ulama of the past, they would speak of good things like I worshipped and I did this much ibadah, I did that much ibadah. One scholar, he said, he was a famous scholar, and he Of the earlier generation He said last night I prayed this much I prayed this much I did this So some of his students said to him We wouldn't imagine you saying such things So he said وَأَمَّا بِنِعْمَةِ رَبِّكَ فَحَدِّثَ And for the blessing of your Lord Speak thereof But there was a difference He wasn't doing it boastfully It was a lesson to others It was a lesson to others Otherwise we shouldn't declare ourselves to be pure Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says he is more knowing of you when he created you from the earth. And when you were fetuses in your mother's wombs. Therefore do not do not declare yourselves to be pure. He knows who is more fearing of Allah. So we have to be careful. It has to be balanced. It has to be sincere. And here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did it in the spirits of assurance. He was reassuring the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam because of the background of the revelation of this surah. And it was in that spirit that Allah tells him, speak of the blessing of your Lord. I end with this. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enable us to understand the Qur'an. And peace be upon his abd and Messenger of Muhammad Muhammad and on his ahli and companions of Allah. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Illa us to understand the Qur'an. This lecture was delivered by Sheikh Abu Yusuf Riyadhul Haq and has been brought to you by Al Kotha Productions. For additional lectures and products, please visit www.akstore.com. We can also be contacted by phone on 44 121 771 or by email via sales at akstore.com. Produced under licence by Alcotha Productions All rights reserved for Alcotha Productions and the author Any unauthorised distribution, broadcasting or public performance of this recording will constitute a violation of copyright